Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Mr. Your host, Andrew Donaldson. This is Heard Tell. Ah, Heard Tell Show. It is Thursday, May the 26th, year of our Lord 2022. Rolling right along. Glad you're with us. A lot going on. We're going to cover a couple things. We're going to return and touch in on two stories we've been covering. Of course, the horrific Texas school shooting. There's some updates there we need to talk about. Also, the abuse scandal in the Southern Baptist Convention. A couple important developments there. We'll touch in on them a little bit later on in the program. Also, uh, there is a stunning piece of journalism. They have the files of the Wager population in China that's being oppressed, including photographs, including what we would call mug shots in the West. Details names it's really haunting stuff that we have from the bbc on the wagers we have been covering this story for as long as we've done her tell we will continue to cover this story we will get to that in just a little bit uh we always try to end on a good note especially when we have really heavy topics uh our friends over in nebraska have a neat way of giving to their region we will cover that in our final segment great guest today good friend Jason Reed, uh, he is the head of PR for Young Voices. He's the lead for Young Voices UK. He does a ton of media and writing over in the UK. We're going to touch in with him. He has a piece out about some legislation that they're pushing in the UK that has things like ID requirements and age limits for the Internet. Uh, really kind of disturbing stuff. We will touch in with them. Also, there's been some developments in UK politics, specifically Prime Minister Boris Johnson's Partygate scandal. We got photographs now. Does that change anything? We're going to ask Jason Reed directly about that when he joins us here shortly. Always enjoy talking to my friend. Uh, Appreciate him being on the program today. Let's start with some domestic politics, though. We covered the primary season. Governor Brian Kemp in Georgia won handily. Uh, This came to my attention by our friend Joe Zemanski, who's been a frequent guest on this program. It's a tweet by Kevin McLaughlin. He's pointing out a Politico piece. And he says this, quote, any youngster out there that wants to learn how to run a campaign should give this a read. This is a case study on how the entire ecosystem should work together for a win. Congratulations to the Brian Kemp team. This Politico piece um, is about how Governor Kemp, when Trump turns against him, racked up an almost 50 point win against David Perdue. Now, let's preface this with a couple of things. David Perdue ran a horrible campaign. People were already mad at him because they didn't really want him to run for this office anyway. The stink of the Georgia runoff debacle was all over him. Plus, he changed pretty much everything about himself the last few years to go hardcore Trumpian, which doesn't play well when that's not your natural ecosystem. So David Perdue has plenty of blame to go on here. He also ended his campaign by basically throwing in the towel, reducing his schedule, and then said some comments about Stacey Abrams that a lot of people took to have racial meaning behind them, as I did, because it was just a vile, despicable statement to make. So good riddance to bad rubbish, and he can skewer her all back to Sea Island. However, 
there's also a lesson to be learned here wider. In the Politico piece, they go into great detail. This is well-written by Alex Incendant. I'm probably mispronouncing his name. I apologize. But again, this is linked in the show notes. Make sure you read the full piece. Um, quoting from Politico, when Brian Kemp's top dollar donors huddled in Georgia governor and his lieutenants at Atlanta's Capital City Club earlier this year, they had reason to worry that his political career was in jeopardy. Former President Donald Trump had spent the previous year savaging the Republican governor for refusing to overturn Georgia's 2020 election results. And when he was bent out, ousting the governor from office, recruiting and endorsing Kemp's primary opponent. Few Republicans in recent years have survived Trump's wrath, but the Kemp team reassured the nearly 200 well-heeled contributors in attendance they had a plan. We're going to go blank scorched earth, Kemp advisor Jay Walker told the group, according to a person with direct knowledge. When you got your foot on someone's neck, you don't take it off until the race is over or they run out of oxygen. That's strong talk. Kemp doesn't give an inch strategy paid off Tuesday with a lopsided win over former Republican Senator David Perdue, for whom Trump campaign appeared in TV ads and spent millions of his carefully guarded PAC dollars, which Trump doesn't usually spend a lot of money. This was personal for him. Back to the Politico. The underscored the political limits of the former president's relentless grievance campaign over 2020 and the power governors have at their disposal to resist Trump's meddling. It's the third time in three weeks Trump has endorsed the losing candidate in a primary for governor. And while Trump and Purdue bet that Kemp's refusal to intervene in 2020 wrote count would sink him with Republican voters still angry about Trump's loss, the governor outmaneuvered them by suffocating Purdue's campaign before it could get any traction, according to more than a dozen interviews with strategists, donors, and party officials involved. By the time Purdue launched his campaign in December, he found that Kemp had used the levers of office to rally support of state power players and pass legislation that assaged pro-Trump voters. Kemp had won the backing of many of Purdue's former longtime advisors, making it difficult for Purdue to build a political operation. And the donors had spent money and months aggressively courting the former senator's biggest donors, leaving Purdue financially devastated and demolishing his plans to establish a big funding super PAC. Even Trump found himself struggling to make inroads. He tried to get the former football star Herschel Walker endorsed by the governor to come out and support Purdue to no avail. Outside of Trump's endorsement, this was a one-sided fight, said Tony Fabrizio, a Trump pollster who also works for Purdue. It was all Kemp. Moral of the story. There's a lot of rhetoric in these campaigns. You win the campaign, though, by campaigning. These people in this story show you the truth of something that we take for granted in the social media and political commentary realm. The better campaign usually wins. The campaign that did their due diligence, who put in the work, usually wins. You're not just going to get a Trump endorsement in something like the state of Georgia for the governorship and run roughshod over people who actually know what they're doing. This has far-reaching implications for the Trump campaign. They don't think these things through, and especially when it comes to relitigating 2020, the voting public doesn't have an appetite for it. Even Trump's most ardent supporters don't have an appetite for it. And now we got the data for it, but Trump is still obsessed over it. If Trump wants to run for president again, he better decide whether he wants to relitigate 2020 or he wants to run on a platform for 2024. The latter might have a little bit of leeway for him to do something with. The former is a dead end because nobody has an appetite for it. You have to run a campaign on the ground. You have to put the work in. And this will be a lesson going forward for Donald Trump if he decides to try to run again. All those people that served on that winning 2016 campaign, they're no longer with Donald Trump. I'm talking about the people that actually plan the thing out, the people that know what they're doing, the people that know how to run a presidential campaign. They're all gone. 
they're not going to be involved in any future endeavors with Donald Trump. He's going to be left with the sycophants and the hangers on and whoever he can get to join him. This is an example that you need people who actually know how to run a campaign. Just the name isn't enough, especially a name that's gone through six, seven years of the ringer, which will be where Donald Trump is if he tries to run for president again. The Trump name was not enough to even get rid of Raffensperger for the Secretary of State gig, somebody he purposely pointed out and wanted removed, and who wound up winning rather easily and avoiding a runoff in the process of doing it. There's lessons here for Team Trump. If there's going to be any value of that brand in the future, they're going to have to change course, because this course leads to being losers. That's something Donald Trump has been very public about that he never wants to be. That's why he never claims accountability for anything. Something to keep in mind going forward. You know, these lessons are not hard and set in stone as what's going to come up in the future. But if Donald Trump continues to be Donald Trump, this is something you're going to see again and again as these primaries play out and as he considers his own future in electoral politics. More Hertel right after this. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Welcome back to Hertel. We want to update you on two stories we've been following. First, the Texas school shooting. They are starting to release the victims' names. Now, as of the time that we're recording this, we don't have the full list. When we have the full list, we will read the full list and memorialize them as we have with other tragic events like this. We will not be using the shooter's name. We will never use his name. He will not get that ignominy from us. But we will mention every single one of these victims. We will go through it. Once the list is completely released, we will go through them all at one time so that we can honor them properly. Uh, There's a couple little news bits out of this. Uh, It does appear from what we are being told by local officials that the shooter legally purchased the uh, weapon and the ammunition that he used in the shooting. They're still working on the motive. We do know now that he was from North Dakota, but had lived in this town most of his life. He has familiar ties there. We know about uh, the fact that he probably shot his grandmother as part of this rampage. It's a developing story. We'll stay with it. We'll continue to cover it, but we'll update you as we go. But a couple important points to add there. Uh, the Southern Baptist Convention scandal abuse story. There's been some news since then. We don't want to lose track of that one. Uh, the SBC Executive Committee did meet. They have agreed to release the so-called Botto list. That's the guy, the lawyer who kept a list of all the problematic pastors and other people affiliated with the church that they knew to be abusers. There's over 700 names on that list. Over 400 of them are officially attached to the Southern Baptist Convention in some shape, form, or manner. They have agreed to release that entire list once they vetted it for accuracy. This should have been done years ago. Uh, This list has been around. The fact that there is a list shows all the culpability that the executive committee has because they knew and they didn't do it. 
I will repeat the very harsh but very true statement I wrote in Ordinary Dash Times. The Hoffer principle is everything starts as a cause, turns into a business, winds up as a racket. And this thing sure does look like it degenerated into a racket. And I don't care if you have doctor, pastor, executive, or whatever title was in front of your name. If you covered up abuse for the good of the brand, to keep the power going, to keep the money rolling in, to keep doing whatever it is you thought you were doing for God, but you were really just spreading evil and covering up for it, you're the degenerate and you're running a racket. Southern Baptist Convention deserves better. The people of faith deserve better. And the victims sure as hell deserve better. I'm glad they're releasing the list, but this is bare minimum stuff. There's a lot of fumigating still to go on in America's largest Christian denomination that is not Catholic. More Hurt Tell right after this. Ah, welcome back to Hertel. Okay, this is a guy I talk to all the time. We're just going to do it on camera now. Jason Reed, he is the head of PR and relations. He's the head of the UK lead for Young Voices, somebody I work with behind the scenes quite a bit, working relationship I've really come to treasure. Good guy, but he does a lot of commentating in his own right, especially in UK media, and we got him today. Jason, good to talk to you, my friend. How are you? Good to speak to you, Andrew. I'm doing great. Thanks. How are you doing? Yeah, been a while since we've had you on the program. We've had a lot of our other UK friends on. It's good to have you back. Um, let's start with something that's very different between uh, the U.S. and the U.K. Uh, free speech, definitely a topic of interest in the U.K. right now. You have very different laws. You have the same problem, though, that you feel like and a lot of people in America feel like free speech is somewhat under assault. You've been writing about this. This is starting to really play out in the digital and online realm over there with some proposed regulation and rulemaking, isn't it? That's right. We have um, in a senior position in government, a woman called Nadine Dorries. Her title, which is quite grandiose, is the Secretary of State for the Department of Culture, Media and Sport. And she is in charge effectively of regulating the Internet as far as the UK government goes. And she has put forward a piece of legislation called the Online Safety Bill, which, depending on your perspective, is either world leading in terms of putting the UK at the forefront of regulation uh, when it comes to tech companies, or it's going to put us behind everybody else because we are going to be regulating the internet much, much more harshly than everyone else. It's going to do all kinds of things to undermine innovation, investment, to undermine free speech. As you were saying, 
It's an amazing behemoth of a bill that contains all kinds of different avenues, all kinds of different aspects, targeting various different parts of the ways that tech companies operate. Uh, and I think that a lot has been said in the UK and in the US indeed about the civil liberties angle, about the problems with uh, trying to put tech companies in a box and trying to treat them as publishers and hold them accountable for everything that's said online. And we also have this very worrying age verification mandate, well, the government denies that it's a mandate, but in practice, it very much is, um, which would effectively uh, put a, an 18 plus lock on the door of any website that the government considers to be adult only. And I think this is a, a terrible, terrible proposal that has all kinds of problems, which we will only learn about once it's actually been put into law. Yeah, hold on to that uh, age uh, thought for just a second. We're going to come back to it. But the way they're going to get to the age restriction on this is, and the way you wrote about it in politics.co.uk, we're linking to it in the show notes. Please go read this full piece. Uh, as you say, and I'm quoting you here, it's an essentially tantamount to creating an online ID card for every adult in the UK. Is it really that simple? Are they going to try to identify every single adult using the Internet in the UK with this kind of a proposal? Well, this is exactly the problem, is it really is that simple a solution to such a complex issue. There's been a lot of discussion in this country, and I know around the world as well, about anonymity online and the problems with anonymous abuse online. And so the rather uh, as a clumsy approach that the government has come up with, this sledgehammer to a nut solution, is, well, let's just mandate that everyone who goes online has to prove who they are and has to prove that they're an adult in order to access certain parts of the internet so we can hold everyone accountable much more easily. And so it will effectively, as I wrote in the piece, it will lead to mandatory online identification for everyone in the UK who wants to dare to use the internet. Um, and of course, that is a very, very lofty goal. It's very hard to see how that will actually be enforceable. Are you really going to mandate that someone creating a Twitter account or someone registering to use any website has to provide ID? It does seem like it will create a sub-internet just for the UK um, that we don't have access to a lot of the internet that the rest of the world does because we've got all these very bizarre and very, very harsh uh, interventions and rules governing the ways that we can uh, interact with these different websites. It's a very, very simple solution um, that doesn't address any of the, the many problems. A lot of this discussion came about after the uh, the very tragic incident in which an MP called David Amos was murdered um, in his constituency office a few months ago. Now, that was, that was awful, and that person who uh, committed that atrocity has been, of course, uh, put on trial and put behind bars for a very long time. But Bizarrely, that led to a lot of MPs talking about online abuse, and there were a group of MPs who actually tried to um, push the online ID card law under the name David's Law, named after the, the late Member of Parliament, um, somehow suggesting or implying that if we could crack down on online abuse using an online ID system, that there would have been less danger of, uh, of this MP being killed. Now, I don't see the link there. I think it's a red herring. I think a lot of people who are concerned about free speech online and about basic civil liberties are very, very unhappy about this link being drawn between a real tra tragedy and the issue of violent crime and, uh, and abuse online, which is, is you can't tackle those things in the same way. But the government doesn't seem to realize that. 
Yeah, we have a joke here in America that any law that has a name attached on it is probably hiding some really bad policy once you get into the nitty gritty of it. I don't know if that applies in the UK. Let's deal with anonymity real quick, though, before we move back to the age thing, because you and I are both people. We uh, write, publish, we do media. Our faces are out there. We use our real names. That's a conscious decision we all make uh, at ordinary times. I have, you know, we do have people that are synonymous that we protect their identities because they're, you know, business people, whatever the case may be. I'm a big proponent of online anonymity. I think it is a key component to free speech. Even the founding fathers of America, when they wrote the Federalist Papers, were using pseudonyms for various reasons. I think that's an important piece. I understand it makes a mess. I understand it doesn't keep things neat and clean. I understand it can be abused. At the same time, freedom is never neat and clean and stays within the lines on things. I think anonymity is a very important fight to have out when we're dealing with things like online ID bills and attempts to crack down on free speech online. What are your thoughts? I I agree completely. This desire for, uh, as you say, neatness and and cleanliness in the online debate is something that we see very commonplace among uh, authoritarian regimes. This is what the Chinese Communist Party wants, right? They want all of the online discourse and all of the discourse altogether, in fact, to be very neat. They want to be able to trace everything back to everybody so they can hold people very, very accountable for what they say to the point that you don't have any free speech to say what you want at all. But as you say, if we're going to have free discourse, if we're going to have free speech, it is going to be messy. That is not a bad thing. That's the way it's supposed to work. It's imperative that everyone has the opportunity to access resources, to access websites, to uh, communicate with people anonymously if they want to. If we take away that very, very basic right, and one of the biggest advantages, I would say, of having an internet to begin with, then there's no limit to what we can't do in the name of rolling back civil liberties. And this brings us right back to where we started and what you're writing about this piece, this age thing. I I get why people go to it because, you know, it's just natural to go like, oh, we're going to protect the children. We do all kinds of things for the children. Uh, The problem with that is, especially when it comes to online, the children know way more about technology than the adults do. I'm telling you, I have teenagers. There's stuff that I try to do online. I just have to go get them. And I do this stuff all day, every day. I, I think it is very wayward to start putting age. The older I get, I'm just going to be honest with you just on a personal level here. The older I get, the less I like age limits on certain things. And I understand things like alcohol, pornography, cigarettes. I get those sorts of things. Yes, you want age limits. But once you get to somebody that's an 18-year-old adult, aren't we just getting into na- gatekeeping and nannyism with this sort of stuff, especially with technology where the kids are usually one or two? You know, we're talking about Facebook with the governments. The kids are already two technologies past that. They're on, you know, they're on Discord. They're on Twitch. You know, there are none of them are on Facebook except to talk to their parents. You see what I'm getting at? Like this is moving too fast. This this just reeks of nannyism to me when we start throwing these age limits on it. And it's mostly a rhetoric tool of, oh, I'm doing this for the children because otherwise you'd never let me get away with it. The problem here is that these complex social and cultural issues and, and the pace of technological innovation, government cannot keep up with either of those. And so when you have the state trying to solve issues like that using regulation, it's always going to be several steps behind. I'm, I'm 21 years old and I regularly ask my, my brother, who's just a few years younger than me, for advice on how to do various technological things that I'm not familiar with. This is It's happening at such a pace that every few years there is some huge innovation. And of course, there are plenty of very easy and accessible ways to get around any age 
mandate, whether it's VPNs, whether it's some kind of other uh, anonymity online, whether it's, you know, tricking websites into thinking that you're actually in an attic in Israel somewhere rather than where you actually are. Um, and so these kinds of these kinds of uh, cack handed measures to just slap age mandates on things never ever work because the government is not in a position even if it wants to even if it's really committed it's not in a position to regulate our interaction with the internet in that way and there are even more that's on a very base level there are even more complex and detailed proposals uh, issues with this proposal sorry that um, that come out once you dig a little bit into the detail. There was some interesting research done by the Adam, Adam Smith Institute, which is a free market think tank here in the UK. Um, when this proposal last came around, which was when it was floated by Prime Minister Theresa May a few years ago and was nicknamed the Porn Laws uh, after the Corn Laws. And so they, they uncovered the fact that MindGeek would be, is a name of the company that would be providing a lot of these age verification services. And MindGeek, by pure coincidence, also happens to own a number of pornography sites, including, I think, RedTube and, and possibly one other. Um, and so by pure coincidence, I'm sure, and nothing else, you would have to provide your identification and maybe even credit card details and things like that to the same company that owns the pornography sites that you might be trying to visit using those age verification measures. This is just completely backwards. This kind of thing can never, ever work in practice because there are all these issues with security and with privacy and the this is not the way to tackle an issue like um children accessing adult content online one of the many other issues which i touched on in the piece as well is that you then have to define what adult content is you then have to decide what is the content that children are allowed to see and what they're not um, and the way that it's defined in the online safety bill by the UK government is very, very worrying because they use, quote, psychologically harmful content, but they don't really explain what psychologically harmful content is. And so it seems like they're not just going to ban, you know, a few porn sites and leave it at that. It seems like they are giving themselves the power to ban almost everything except for a few extremely colorful and child friendly websites if they want to and to restrict access to those unless you hand over your details. So this was never about children to begin with. This is about the nanny state. It's about power. It's about putting in place barriers for ordinary people doing ordinary things like browsing the internet. Yeah. And you mentioned, Jason, rejoining us, you mentioned communist China a minute ago. They have openly complained about the fact that they can't enforce their internet laws on children because they keep going past their bans on like hours of usage they're only allowed to game during certain times they were stealing their grandparents logins if the evil chinese communist party regime which can control just about every aspect of life especially online can enforce this stuff there's no way a decently open and free society like britain is going to be able to do this is there that's exactly right this is one of the few things that gives me hope about the future and about future generations is the way that the younger people, children and teenagers and Generation Z, perhaps, if you want to call them that, respond when these kinds of issues come up. I'm reminded of uh, whatever you think of, of Donald Trump when there was that issue of uh, Donald Trump holding rallies in the US and various children and teenagers on TikTok um, congregating to order lots and lots of free tickets to those rallies and then not turn up so that Donald Trump ended up talking to an empty room. Now, whatever you think of Trump, I think that is hilarious, first of all, and it's a very, very good indication of the spirit that, uh, that young people have when they are confronted with these kinds of um, very, very ill-thought-out regulations. And so I, I just hope that that 
generational spirit does not go away that we can keep resisting and yes use your vpns yes do whatever you have to do to just continue using the internet continue living your life in the way you want to of course we would never encourage that people break the law um but nonetheless there are it seems a huge amount of flaws in uh, in this bill and in every other similar bill that comes up in the uk and the us and around the world because the government ministers frankly just don't have the knowledge and the insight that children do into the internet because they're the ones who have grown up grown up using it they're the ones who have grown up uh, with it all around them with it at their fingertips every second of every day and so children are always going to be ahead of the game and that's what gives me hope that perhaps these measures will not uh, succeed in locking away most of the internet as much as the government might want them to yeah and as you touched on in your piece you can also take credit that the uh, people of the uk are overwhelmingly against this almost two-thirds majority by some polling. So you can take some comfort in that as well. Maybe they'll listen to that. Jason Reed, we're going to continue with him after the break, talk a little UK politics. There's been some developments in some of the stories we've been covering over there. We'll ask him about that because he's there or not. We'll find out what's going on the ground. Our friend Jason Reed from Young Voices, right after the break, as Hertel continues. Okay, since he's in the UK, I've got to ask him about it because we've been covering it. Uh, Jason Reed joining us, uh, UK Young Voices. We know that we live in a media age. We know that imagery changes things. We know the Partygate scandal with Boris Johnson. We knew the various sessions of Prime Minister questions. He's done a lot of tap dancing around these issues. Now we kind of knew what was probably inevitably going to happen. We've got a photo of him actually partying. How much is that going to change this story? Does it change the narrative? Does it refire it up? Does it put more pressure on the prime minister? Now that we got the visual, this is the age we live in. It changes things. What's this going to do to this story now? I'm afraid it won't make a huge amount of difference. It feels like the party gate story has been going for a long, long time. And I, I feel for the first time relatively confident today in saying I think this is the last development we will see. Um, the Metropolitan Police investigation has concluded. Uh, Sue Gray, the civil servant who was charged with investigating the political aspect of whether Boris Johnson broke the rules or broke the ministerial code, that has concluded as well. She has this morning published her report in full, it seems that there is nowhere near enough appetite 
within the Conservative Party to remove Boris Johnson over this, to trigger some kind of vote of no confidence in his leadership. We've had all the evidence, we've had all the photos released, and so I now think that today is the day when Boris Johnson starts fighting back. And I don't see that with any, I don't say that with any glee or delight in my voice. I said um, many times when the Partygate scandal first emerged that he should have resigned and he really should have done. He's the first prime minister ever to have been served a fixed penalty notice, fined by the police while in office. That's never happened before. Um, And just a question of honour and honesty and integrity. He should have gone a long time ago. However, I am not Uh, at all of the belief that that actually will happen. I think it's highly likely that he will lead the Conservatives into the next general election, which will happen either next year or in 2024, and that they will probably win that as well. As far as Partygate goes, there's been some new details that have emerged today because Sue Gray has published her report. As you said, some photos have come out showing uh, various events that we'd heard about before but we were lacking some details. Um, There are several aspects which seems to contradict some of what Boris Johnson said, like there was one particular leaving do at which a couple of senior members of Downing Street staff were leaving and they held uh, some kind of small gathering to see them off. Um, And Boris Johnson seemed to imply that it was a very quick you know, toast of a drink and then and then leaving. Uh, but in actual fact, the photos show that there was quite a substantial spread of food. There was various drinks. There were lots of people in attendance. There are many, many holes you can pick in what he has said. Um, the point of contention is whether he actually lied to Parliament, because if he did lie to Parliament, that is an offence where you have to resign. And if it was clear that he resigned to Parliament, it's almost certain that he would be kicked out by his own party. But because of the way he talks, because he's, for want of a better word, he's kind of slimy in the way that he dodges issues. He has been able to um, get around it, even though very clearly he has been trying to shift the blame onto other people, shift the focus away from himself throughout this uh, scandal, even when it was very clear that he was very much part of what was going on and very much in the know when those rules were being broken. You know, sometimes we overthink politics. We get into all the nitty gritty and the 3D chess of it and all that. How much of this story is just fatigue? There's a whole lot of other stuff going on. And we've talked about it before with our UK contributors over and over again. There's no real clear cut successor in the conservative party that would be ready to step forward. How much of this is just kind of inertia of those factors of there's story fatigue, there's a lot of other things going on in the world, people are trying to move on from this story, and there's nobody to really step up and take Boris Johnson's place, so just practically speaking, taking him out at this point would be a problematic for the party. Is it a lot more of that stuff, and we're just putting some of the more political stuff on top of it, trying to make more of it than what it probably was? Well, there is definitely a lot of political fatigue around Partygate. It's been clear, I think, for some time. In fact, I would say it's been clear since almost the beginning that this was not going to be a big enough scandal to force him out of office because people are tired of hearing about it. And shortly after the scandal first broke, we then had other very significant developments, like, for example, Russia invading Ukraine. And since then, we've had the cost of living crisis in the UK that has really taken hold and lots of questions being asked about that. And it really puts into perspective how important or perhaps unimportant it is to have detailed discussions about whether or not the prime minister ate some birthday cake in his office or whether he had drinks in the Downing Street garden one day two years ago. Um, so there is a lot of fatigue around it. And that's why I think it's it's clear now that the story will go away, because up to now, it's always been waiting for the next thing, whether it's waiting for the Metropolitan Police to publish their findings or whether for 
waiting for Sue Gray to publish her findings and so on. Now there is nothing left to wait for, as far as I can see. And so the scandal is over. I'm not convinced, however, about this argument of uh, Boris Johnson staying in post only because there isn't someone clear to replace him. Um, when Theresa May resigned in 2019, Boris Johnson was seen by many as the clear successor and he won that leadership contest by a landslide. But there aren't many occasions before that. I can think certainly of David Cameron, the prime minister before that, where there would have to be a very clear successor for it to be considered possible for the prime minister to be to resign or to be forced out of office. I think there are plenty of contenders. Rishi Sunak, the chancellor, has seen his uh, polling ratings tumble a little bit recently. But there's Liz Truss, the foreign secretary, who is very, very popular in the Conservative Party. We have uh, various other senior cabinet ministers. There's a huge amount of talent in the Conservative Party. There would be no problem at all. There would be no shortage of candidates if Boris Johnson were to resign to tomorrow. The problem is that he is, as some people say, Teflon Boris. Nothing sticks to him. None of these scandals can bring him down. And of course, it's in very recent memory that he delivered Brexit and he um, secured that 80 seat huge majority in Parliament for the Conservative Party back in 2019. He is still seen as an election winner. He is still seen as someone who people in the red wall of former Labour heartlands like and will vote for. And so I don't think there is any chance, I don't think there's any appetite to get rid of him before the next election. Yeah, he's going to be an interesting case study when we get like five or 10 years away from his premiership and look back on it. Because he, he's one of those guys, you call it Teflon. Um, back during the Obama administration, we called it the stray vultures series. There's just so much going on. It's not that there's scandals. It's just they kind of come one after another after another. You're just going from scandal to scandal to scandal, and you never stop and process any of it. So it doesn't seem like it sticks. Fascinating political figure going down the road when we look back on his tenure. I think it'll be interesting. Okay, Jason Reed, real quick before we got to let you go, my friend. I want to do this. Um we have lots of young voices contributors on this program. You are behind the scenes, uh, one of the leaders of that. I work with you all the time on getting these great guests on here. The good news about that is, is this is the season where people who are curious about young voices can actually be joining young voices. You're more articulate than I am. That's why you're my boss at Young Voices. Could you articulate to folks who are liberty minded, freedom minded, who are looking to do things in the media and writing and commentary realm? Give them the pitch because this is the season where they can actually take a look at Young Voices and see if they want to jump in with us. I'm proud of my uh, affiliation with them. I think we do a whole lot of really good things and good work. Give them the pitch and let them know how they can do that, my friend. Absolutely. So the Young Voices Contributor Program uh, takes people on twice a year. And now is the time if you want to apply. The deadline is on Tuesday, uh, May 31st to apply at young-voices.com. And we can help you uh, if you become a contributor. We have a team of professional editors who will work with you on your writing. And I can testify from personal experience, it makes a huge difference. It will make you into a much better political commentator, a much better op-ed writer and help you make those connections with media outlets to get published. And this applies in the US, in the UK, in Australia, in France, as of recently as well. And we also have the, the PR side, we call it, which I'm in charge of, which is to do with TV and radio and broadcast interviews. We train you up and we mentor you. And if, we, if you want to, we can talk about booking you for TV and radio interviews. Uh, and we help, we hope that we help people have the gain the professional training and skills that they need to go on and commentate on politics, to have their voice heard, to be a policy analyst, to be a journalist, to be whatever they want to be within the realm of politics and policy. And because we just give you those, those skills, building that bridge between the media and young people. And when I say young people, officially,
crucially, the uh, upper age limit is 35. But of course, I'm sure Andrew can testify that we have a little bit of uh, flexibility in certain cases on that particular front. Flexibility. That's what we're going to call it now. You're going to call me old with flexibility. I didn't say old, Andrew. I said (laughs) flexible. Let's stick with that. (laughs) (laughs) My birthday is actually on Sunday, so I I feel every bit of it, my friend. I appreciate that. Uh, Jason Reed, one last quick thing, though. You do a lot of UK media. You're going to do media right after this. What's something that we should be watching from this side of the pond in the UK? I know the cost of living is something both sides of the Atlantic is going to be dealing with. What's one of the media things, because you're in those green rooms, you talk to producers, things like that. What's bubbling that we should be paying attention to over there? Well, this is a very interesting time in the UK media, and a lot of that discourse revolves around how much the UK media should or shouldn't be like American media. In fact, we've had two new television channels launch, national ones, in the last year, one GB News and one Talk TV, which is owned by the same company uh, that runs Fox News. And there's a lot of discussion about whether either of them could or should or or will soon be the British version of Fox News and this kind of talking, um, you know, down the camera in a very opinionated, often right of centre way. So I would suggest keeping an eye on those two outlets in particular. It's a very, very interesting development that is going on. I think it's a good thing. I think we don't have enough um, we didn't have enough variety um, among uh, in terms of TV, news and opinion and politics for people to choose from. And so more is better and the free market will decide who succeeds. And I think there's a lot of space for um, new voices to come through. But that is something that I think is really, really interesting to keep an eye on is how those two channels compete and develop and how they shape the, out, the uh, output of the bigger and more established channels like the BBC and like Sky News. Yeah. And uh, we appreciate seeing you on there. We appreciate you getting the young voices out on there. Uh, I pitch young voices because one simple thing, the people are outstanding. I've, every single one of them. It's amazing for the several years I've been with them. Jason Reed, always enjoy talking to you. It's good to do it on camera. Let's do it again soon, my friend. Thanks so much, Andrew. It's great to talk to you as well. Yes, sir. Thank you. Welcome back to Hertel, a story we have covered for as long as we've been doing Hertel, and I fear we'll be covering for a long time because nobody seems to be able to really do anything about it. Uh, the Wager population in China. This is an oppressed population. It's a Muslim minority population that is in concentration camps. There's no other way to cause this. This is a great human rights stain on China, the ruling parties in China, and the world that we don't talk about it enough. The BBC has obtained thousands of files, including police reports and photographs from out of the Xinjiang province that the Uyghurs are being detained and persecuted in. This is a stunning piece of journalism. You can find it at the BBC. We've also linked to it. It's called The Faces from Chinese Uyghur Detention Camps. They literally have the faces and tell you the details. Reading from the BBC, thousands of photographs from the heart of Chinese highly secretive system of mass incarceration in Xinjiang province, as well as the shoot to kill policy for those who try to escape are among a huge catch of data hacked from police computers serving in the region. The Zhejiang police files, as they're being called, were passed to the BBC earlier this year after a months-long effort 
to investigate and authenticate them, they can be shown to offer significant new highlights into the internment of the region's Uyghur population and other Turkic minorities. Their publication coincides with the recent arrival in China of the United Nations Human Rights Commissioner Michelle Blanchett, who, for the controversial visit to Xinjiang, with critics concerned that her itinerary will be under the tight control of the government. Let's be adults here. It is. They're not going to let her see anything. Uh, There will be nothing come of that of any substance. The cash reveals an unprecedented detail, reading from the BBC here. China's use of re-education camps and former prisons as two separate but related systems of mass detention of the Uyghurs, and seriously calls into question its well-honed public narrative about both. The government's claim that the re-education camps built across Xizang since 2017 are nothing more than schools is contradicted by internal police instructions, guarding rosters, and the never-before-seen images of the detainees. These are like mug shots, if you uh, are familiar. And its widespread use of the terrorism charges under which many of the thousands were swept into formal prisons is exposed as the pretext for the parallel method of internment with police spreadsheets full of arbitrary draconian sentences. The documents provide some of the strongest evidence to date for a policy targeting almost any expression of Uyghur identity, culture, or Islamic faith, and of a chain of command running all the way to the Chinese leader, Xi Jinping. The hacked files contain more than 5,000 police photographs of Uyghurs taken between January and July of 2018, using at least 2,884 of them can be shown to be have been detained. As for those listed as being in re-education camps, there are signs that they are not willing, quote-unquote, students. China has long claimed them to be. It then goes on to list these people. You need to see these pictures. Some of them you can actually see the police right off camera with batons making them sit for these photographs. This is stuff right out of things like the Holocaust, where you see those things from like the Auschwitz Twitter handle where they show and then tell the stories. This is genocide in real time. This is a grave human rights violation. And those of us that have freedom and freedom of speech, freedom of press and platforms to do so should not allow China and their economic might to buy our silence. We must not let them. We will be judged harshly. And the untold number of Uyghurs suffering under this need us to be their voice until they have a better situation free of the oppression of the Chinese Communist Party, which is interning them and God knows what else. More Hertel right after this. Welcome back to Hertel. You know, we always try to end on a good note. Let's go to Norfolk. No, not that one. The other one, Norfolk, Nebraska, the city of Norfolk. This is from uh, Metro News Channel, Nebraska. Special events starting to donate to local charities and nonprofits in Northeast Nebraska. The Norfolk area, Big Give, has a multitude of sponsors putting on an event throughout the city, all with the goal of raising money for charitable organizations. By donating to these events, participants will be able to see free gifts or enjoy the festivities going on. Places like the Northeast Nebraska Animal Shelter are allowing donators to cuddle with their animals. Who can beat that deal? Other places like the Orphan Grain Trail Train and Big Bang Boom are giving away free food to those willing to donate and providing live entertainment. As of the publication of this, the Norfolk Area Big Give has raised over $70,000 online. Those hoping to make a donation can do so on their full webpage here, and we link to that 
in the show notes. You can go there if you so wish. You can wish to attend the events and the activities in town. You can also visit the events page, which we will also link to. So if you're out in northeast Nebraska or the surrounding area, check out the Big Give. Lots of good things. Come on, who doesn't like animal cuddles? That'll do it for Herd Tell. A little lighter note on yet another heavy news day. It's why we do it that way. We sure appreciate you watching and or listening, however you are, whether it's on the YouTube channel or any of the podcasting platforms or our radio partner, Big Talker Live out of Wilmington, North Carolina. Sure appreciate all of you. However you're watching or listening to the show, please make sure to leave a comment. Make sure to leave a rating if it gives you that option. And most importantly, make sure you subscribe. You get everything we do on Herd Tell. Daily episodes, brand new, turning down the noise of the news cycle. Heard tell good talks. That's the interview portions every afternoon, twice on Sunday's show. That's a Big Talker exclusive product and podcasting platform. It's audio only, but it's all the interviews from the previous week in one-stop shopping. Great product. If you want to talk to us directly, we'd love to hear from you at show at gmail.com. At show on the Twitter. We'd love to hear from you. Of course, mine and all our guests' social media is on the lower third graphics. Make sure you follow, support them. All the links to the stories we talk to are on the show notes on those pages. So until we talk to you again, wherever you are across the street or around the world, we hope you're well. We hope you're well-fed. We'll talk to you again soon on Hertel. All the music on her tell is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com. Thomas Lemon.